hello there and welcome, or again, welcome back to the Yearbooking Report podcast. If it's welcome back, appreciate you coming back. If it's welcome, maybe you've never checked this out before. My name is Scott Giese. I am a Jostens Yearbooks representative, 21 years, but I've spent nearly the last four decades involved with journalism, mostly broadcasting, radio, some television, and so on, also some print. And I've enjoyed doing this since my high school days because for me, it's all about storytelling. And that is the key word for this particular episode. And I think we've got some great ideas and tips and inspiration uh, for anyone listening to the episode here as we talk about storytelling, which when you think about it, that should be the number one goal of every single yearbook advisor and staffer out there. Our job is to tell the stories of the school year and, of course, especially about the people of your school. And yet a lot of yearbook staffs, pretty much they look at this job as, well, we're making pages in a book. No, actually, hopefully, after this episode, you'll agree it's about telling the stories of the school year, as many stories as we can possibly tell. And recently we caught up with Casey Nichols. Now, if you're in the yearbook world, you've surely heard Casey's name at some point. He just retired this year as the very successful longtime advisor at Rockland High School in Rockland, California. His yearbook's out there, award winners, just outstanding. Casey just retired from his teaching position, and we are thrilled, uh, we at Jostens are thrilled, to have him now as one of our yearbook ambassadors. His job is to go around the country, go to various workshops, teach, lead, and inspire yearbook advisors and staffs to, well, tell stories. And he knows it better than anybody. If you're really into scholastic journalism across the country, of course, that Nichols name is kind of famous. You want to talk about a power couple here. We've got Casey and his wife, Sarah. Sarah is also an outstanding yearbook advisor from Northern California and the current president of the Journalism Education Association. So again, you want to talk about a power couple? Here they are. They are really, really into student journalism. They know the value and they know how to do it really well, inspiring their kids just to do fantastic stuff and tell great stories. So we're going to get some tips and ideas from Casey, although here at the beginning he's going to sort of introduce himself. And for those of you advisors listening that, you know, you didn't come directly to be yearbook advisor, you kind of came around a certain course, well, you're really science, well, you're really math, or you're the school nurse or something, wait till you hear Casey's story, all right? You won't feel so badly, but great things to go, so let's meet him. Casey, first off, I appreciate you taking time to uh, join us here today. You are the second Nichols that I've uh, interviewed over the last several months, and I think yeah. you know the other one. Um, and let's start with just sort of a, a basic introduction because I've been looking forward to this because I know that you recently retired as a terrific yearbook advisor, and now you're working for us. You're working for Jostin. So first off, let's just do some background. Tell us something about yourself, where you're from, your past experience, and so on. Well, I'm actually a second-generation Californian, and there aren't many of those, um, which makes my grandchildren fourth-generation, so they're really rare. But I, I grew up in Northern California, um, was on the high school newspaper staff sort of by accident, became a daily uh, 
reporter and sports editor at the local small daily for seven years and then decided I wanted to teach and uh, went back to school got my teaching credential and was coaching part-time on the side so when I was hired at Ike Intermediate School back in the early 80s long time ago uh, I was really hired to be the basketball coach but they said they offered me two jobs one of them was science and math and one of them was English and the famous, oh, by the way, we have this class that does yearbook, newspaper, spelling, English, and um, reading. And I said, well, shoot, I've got a journalism background. I'll take that one. So that's kind of how I become a yearbook advisor, like a lot of people do, sort of by accident to get a job. But uh, I fell in love with it very, very quickly. Um, I, because I've always been a writer and a little bit of design, but the design aspect and the photo aspect was exciting for me. So I did 11 years at the middle school, and during that time I took a pause and went to Ball State University in Indiana and uh, got my master's degree in journalism because I decided if I'm going to do this, I want to really get educated about it. Well, that opened up the world of scholastic journalism for me because... At Ball, Ball State had the, by far the biggest summer workshops at that time, and um, I met tons of powerful, strong, talented people in scholastic journalism, and I also my, met my best friend, John Cutsinger, in the summer of 1986, and in fact, that's where I'm speaking to you from, is his home in Florida. Uh, so, my master's uh, thesis was in meeting yearbook deadlines. I did the first research on that, and it was pretty, pretty interesting. Sort of comes down to one thing: like it's up to the advisor; they've got to decide to, that they want to meet the deadlines. Uh, obviously, in working in tandem with other people, but really, it's the advisor. And then I moved. They opened a new high school in our area, and I moved up to that. It wasn't in the same district, but I moved to Rockland High School, and I taught there for 25 years and advised. And for the last 20 years, I had journalism full time. It was an awesome job. Uh, great kids, great community. We eventually moved into that community because when Sarah Nichols, president of JEA, who you interviewed, and I got married and eventually had a child who is now 12 years old, um, we decided we want her to go to school in Rockland because they're great schools. So we have lived in Rockland now for about seven or eight years. And uh, I absolutely left still loving the work. Love the kids, um, love everything I did every day, except for teacher meetings and grading. So uh, I just reached a point where it made more sense for me to retire. Financially, it made more sense. Um, it gave me more time. Our daughter is now in middle school, so now I get to manage some time to help her. Uh, but then um, I got the opportunity to go to work for Dawson, so that's kind of my where I am today. Still adjusting to retirement, I have to say, uh, but um, not missing the classroom day to day because I get enough of this. Like yesterday, I taught workshops here in Florida and it was pretty awesome. Uh, so I, I still get enough of it to kind of feed my storytelling soul. I'm going to guess that I have some advisors and teachers listening in here and they are seriously jealous. First mm. off, you 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 kind of mentioned you're retired now. You're not exactly missing the classroom, but for those folks that are really into journalism, 
the ability that you were sort of just journalism teacher. That's what you did at your school instead of, oh, yeah, I've got to do science or I have to do social studies or I have to do some other topic, that you were able to hone in on just journalism. I'm jealous. If I was a teacher, right. that's what I want to do. Is this a California thing that you can do that? I don't know of a lot of other places where you can do that. Um, it's it shows up in different areas. There are some states where it's not uncommon, like Texas, for example. Um, Missouri has a number of programs. Obviously, you have to have a fairly big school. So we, we were in the 1500 to 2500 range, depending on growth and so forth. Um, but I think for me, I just built the program. Like I didn't start out that way. I started out teaching photo and graphics and yearbook and journalism. But we slowly just kind of built the program. Um, we made it a place to be. And that's a whole talk that John and I have done together for years about building culture. Now, if you're in a small school, building culture might mean you have two periods to do the yearbook instead of one. Uh, or you you finally get 35 kids. Like, I, I totally get it. And uh, as I have traveled over the years, I have so much for respect for the people who are teaching any number of subjects. English is probably the most common, but you name it, I've heard it. You know, special ed in yearbook or... Uh, math in yearbook or business business is not even a bad fit but so I have incredible respect for what they do and uh, I always have said some of the things we did at Rockland you probably couldn't do at the same scale in those other situations because I had 200 kids who worked on all the media um, so yes it was unusual and yes I get to do I'm pretty sure that's why I kept going until 65, because I was doing all journalism. I, in fact, a good friend of mine who retired, you're younger than I am, retired three years earlier and looked at me periodically and would say, you didn't teach English. And, and I thought, you know what, he's right. I didn't have to grade the English papers and stuff. So, um, yeah, I get it. But I think my point would be, where whatever you have, you want to build a culture where kids want to be, and you want to grow that culture. If it's from five to seven kids, or in my case, from 180 to 200, but wherever you fall in that range. Um, probably, the once you've learned the yearbook gig, advising it, uh, managing that culture is the most important thing you do, and making it a place where kids want to be. And that, that applies to anything you teach, but it's really important in scholastic journalism. Well, I've been at this for 20 years plus now, and I've had a principal who was an advisor. I've had a principal secretary who was an advisor. I had a school nurse who was an advisor. So for, for those advisors listening, no matter what your background, we appreciate you. Please keep doing Absolutely. what you're doing. Now, did I hear this correctly? You did a master's degree thesis on hitting deadlines? What is that? <laughs> yes, I did. Yes, I did. What was that? Well, so th that was actually the name of a meeting, meeting deadlines in high school yearbook programs. And uh, it'd be so much easier today because uh, we, we barely had email then. Like most of it was done by snail mail and I had to hand tabulate all the surveys. But um, I, 
So I surveyed yearbook reps. I surveyed um, and visited multiple yearbook plants where I talked to management. Surveyed and talked to tons of advisors in the process of that and trying to find out all the different things that go into meeting deadlines because it's always been one of the major issues. Uh, and, and I would say pre-desktop publishing it was even a bigger issue because the production process was so slow. Uh, so I, I decided to explore that and, and uh, it would be interesting to redo it today when you could do, there's so much more you could do digitally. But um, yeah, it was, it was fun. I, I literally got to go places and meet people that were fascinating to me and have these discussions about how do you get kids to meet deadlines? But like, and, and then there's a long, complex answer and it's a 150 page book, and, which I haven't looked at in years. It'd be interesting to revisit that. But like I said, the bottom line is the advisor has to decide this is important. And um, I've always considered it important because meeting the deadline is a life skill. Something we have to do in our jobs. You and I had to be ready at a certain time this morning and technology failed us a little bit, but we got started, right? So uh, that's part of our job is to teach kids life skills and deadline is one of those. So. So not, some things haven't changed, but actually, now there's an open-ended question. I've been at this a long time. You've been at it longer. How have yearbooks, have they, how have yearbooks changed over the course of your career? And, all right, we mentioned the production process, the tools we use, and so on, but maybe in other ways, or has the yearbook changed? Maybe it's exactly the same, really. How would you answer that? Um, it's a little bit of both, but I, I would say the technology has allowed us to change the content of the yearbook. So in the, first of all, there are, in fact, I was talking to a friend about this the other day. There are more really good yearbooks in the United States now, um, from, from a standards point of view, than um, at any time in my career. And I think the technology allows us to do that because students are able to do so much of it themselves. They, um, from anywhere from taking photos digitally to designing digitally, uh, the process of, of revision is obviously a hundred times easier. Um, most people listening to us probably don't realize, like, you used to pay to correct stuff. Well, now, you just make sure it's right before you send it in, or if you're, a, in some cases, you're able to fix them. So all of that, so I would say the journalistic side is a lot better, a lot stronger, storytelling side, which is ultimately um, what we're trying to do. Uh, and I think the quality of the photography is much higher because digital allows us to shoot a ton of photos. And then we can also color correct and manipulate if we, if we kind of get that built into our process. So I think the overall quality is much higher. The journalism side is much higher. Um, I think some of the things, some of the bad ideas are still out there, like senior superlatives and senior quotes, some of the traditions that we, I think we need to rethink and, and um, make them audience friendly, but journalism appropriate, if that makes sense. Um, I think one of the downsides on the digital side is when you make a mistake, it's on Twitter or Instagram or something in a heartbeat. 
and pretty soon we're on the web and you know every spring we read the horror stories or the mistakes so we're, we're way more under the microscope than we ever were before if you made a mistake in 1980 probably only part of the school knew um, if you make a poor choice or inappropriate mistake now the whole world might know so uh, there's a, a pressure to kind of stay on top of those things more yep yep it's a little more scary right now uh as we're recording this i've done it in my neighborhood i've done a series of of yearbook workshops with a lot of schools this week i always talk about photography and i mention that four-letter word film and every now and then i'll get a kid in the room they'll give me a funny look like film i'm thinking yeah. okay i need to join casey in retirement uh anyway uh, and all that stuff We'll have more with outstanding yearbook advisor Casey Nichols coming up here in just a moment. Again, as we talk about storytelling, Casey's going to start to get into the, some of the nuts and bolts about what he did with his uh, program for so many very successful years. Now, of course, one way we tell stories is, of course, with photos. That's the number one element of any yearbook. And if you haven't heard the word yet, this year's Jostens Photo Contest is now open. Go to jostens.com slash photo contest. All the details are there, all the information, how to enter uh, the 10 different categories, once again this year, for photography. Yes, there is a separate category for middle school or junior high students so that they're not necessarily competing with the older ones. It's very easy to enter. Uh, students can enter multiple uh, times, multiple images, and so on. Yes, there is some work you need to do, especially if we have pictures of people. You're supposed to get some signed permissions. You're not supposed to just use somebody else's picture, way, you know, willy-nilly and so on. So there's a little bit of work involved, but it's not nearly as hard as you might think. Tons of prizes to give away. The grand prize this year, once again, will be $1,000 and a brand new SLR camera package. And boy, that's a real deal right there just for taking an awesome photo. But there's also plenty of other prizes for first, second, third place, and so on in each of the individual categories. Every year I beg students, come on, that's a really great picture you have there. Why don't you enter it in the contest? And most folks don't. Well, let's change that this year. Now the deadline for the contest is March 1st, but goodness, don't wait that long. If you've got some great pictures already from the summer or fall, why don't you enter them now? Once again, the website address, jostens.com slash photo contest. It's very easy to do. We'll find out the winners later on next spring. And of course, the winners always make our Jostens lookbook. They're featured in our inspiration gallery on the Jostens Yearbook Avenue website for every Jostens school out there. Uh, lots of great stuff. So let's see. Come on, get an enter there. Anybody can enter, students, of course, and we'd like to see more entries. That would be great. One more time, jostens.com slash photo contest. All the details are there. Download them. Start uploading your pictures. Register on the website, of course, and let's see what you can do. Who knows? You could be a really big winner. Now, let's get back to more about storytelling. Let's find out why this is important and then how to do it with our friend Casey Nichols. Now, yeah. the main reason we're talking today is about storytelling. Now, you know it and I know it from my 
previous experience in journalism and broadcasting and so on, and just the fact that I love telling stories. Um, Casey, sometimes I have a really hard time just getting kids and even advisors to understand that, oh, I'm a storyteller, not just a page maker or a yeah. picture taker or uh, you know something like that. I, for some reason, a lot of people really struggle with this idea of storytelling. Now, you're far more experienced than I. Have you had this struggle over the years just to get especially young people to understand really what their role is with your book? Um, I'm sure I did a while ago, but I'm sure... I would say yes. My first couple of years at Rockland, um, I had to kind of teach them what a yearbook could be. I don't, one of my good counseling friends said you should never should on anyone. And, and I love that. Uh, so we want to talk about the potential of what a yearbook could be. And John Katzinger was the one who, you know, we used to teach the five purposes of a yearbook and and, and I still do. It's a history book, and I'm a history teacher as well, a long time ago. But really, it comes down to memories. And what are the things we're going to remember? We're going to remember stories. In our own life, we remember stories. We don't necessarily remember facts. Well, if someone asks us um, what our favorite class is, we rarely stop and say, well, it was journalism in high school. We're, that's going to evolve into a story. In fact, we know ourselves by our stories. So I believe a yearbook has a potential to not just record memories, which is what I love that John kind of captured that idea of that's really what a, book, a yearbook is. It's a memory book. Yes, it has facts for history. Um, yes, it has PR value. Yes, it has education. Yes, it has reference value. What did that guy look like? But really, it's a memory book. So um, we just built it into our culture over time. And one of the first things I say when I teach even workshops now is, is we're going to tell stories in the yearbook, but I try to take their anxiety away by saying stories aren't necessarily copy. When, you, when we say stories, they think of a feature story. Um, that's one way to tell a story. Photos are another. We want our photographers to think about oh, what's the story behind this photo or this set of photos? What, what story am I trying to tell? by capturing these images, what words will go with them to help get capture that story. The designer's job then is to display stories in a way that people want to read them. And again, read might be looking at photos. Uh, read might be invitation to look at the headline. And read can look at all kinds of alternative copy formats. So my strong belief um, and this is kind of a long story, so I'll give you a short version, uh, over the last 12 years has been that the, the most important thing to do is to allow people to tell their own stories. And in fact, invite or encourage them to tell their own stories. So in my journalism teaching, uh, we have strong emphasis on interviewing skills, and we have strong emphasis on gathering anecdotal stories in first-person voice, or what I call authentic voice, uh, and allow people to tell their stories, because they want to. Um, 
Brandon Stanton of Humans in New York says that people are people have all these stories and they want to tell them. And if you look at his work, and he's one of my heroes and inspirations for what I've done, uh, they do. They tell amazing stories. So if you look at the Rockman High Yearbook over the last four years, you will see a strong emphasis on first-person stories, uh, letting people tell their stories. So I emphasize that. So I try to take that, like, there's lots of ways to tell stories. And in fact, when you get a mature program or a sophisticated program um, that's really built it into their culture, they're looking for different ways to tell stories. One of my favorite yearbooks I advised was probably five years ago now. And the theme was, um, now it's personal. And 90% of the copy in that yearbook is first-person copy. Every caption starts with someone explaining it in a quote. Like, really good quotes. We, we did a good job of not just letting people talk, but having them tell us how things happen and why they happen and adding some color and flavor so that we understood. But that book is so special because it's written in the voice of the students of Rockland High School. And anybody can learn that. And to go back to something I said before, that's a life skill. Learning how to have a conversation like you and I are and trusting that it'll just kind of go where it needs to go. Um, that's where we find stories. So I love that part of it. Um, we've had fantastic experiences at Rockland because it was built in the culture. I, the stories that my kids find, people ask me how they find that, and I kind of go, I don't know. Uh, because they just kind of go out and do it. It's built in. Um, I will say that every student in the program every year got at, an assignment of at least one student at random, total random, they got this name, and they had to go find out a story about that person. Um, and that was the training process. I taught interviewing. So even the photographers went out and did it in what I call Humans in New York style. So they took a, a photograph of someone, not just lined up on a wall, but took an interesting photo. And then they had a conversation with them. And uh, we just would find out remarkable things about kids. Um, uh, one of my favorites was um, the kid, the very first year we did it, kid who was whose parents were married three times to each other. He was born the first time they were married, they divorced, they remarried, divorced, and at that time they were remarried again. And he tells the story what that's like. It's, it's maybe 200 words, but it's like, wow. So for me, the purpose of that, in your book terms, is to capture what life is like in 2020. Because kids now have tons of interesting, whether it's a passion they have, you know, they play Minecraft six hours a day, or they have 5,000 followers on TikTok, whatever. Um, or something dramatic that happened in their life, but we're, we're, we're capturing really the heart of student life in 2020. And you can apply that in sports, academics, across the board. That's not the only thing in the yearbook, uh, but I think, and, and John was the one that used to say this about the Rockland book, because we have heart. You know, that book had heart. And um, it was compelling to read. Uh, and some of them, a lot of the stories were not very long. So... Uh, I, I guess I would summarize it by this. I got to the point towards the end where I believe this. 
Student media has the potential to be a force for empathy and understanding on a high school campus and or middle school, okay, but especially high school. And when we think about the mental health issues and anxiety, stress, all those things that students are going through today, um, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. If we can help promote understanding of other people and realize, yeah, we all got stuff. We've got great stuff. We've got hard stuff. Uh, then we're kind of a force for good on campus, and I love that idea. So that that evolved over the last 12 years, and I started by saying it's a long story. The short story is um, I sort of had a near-death experience with this rare autoimmune disease, and um, at the same time my daughter was being born. And so I think that kind of changed my perspective about journalism and why I go to school. Like I realized the most important part of my job teaching was my relationship with the kids. It wasn't teaching journalism. Uh, because I because I focused on that, I think I did a better job of teaching. So uh, a long version of why I have a deep passion for it. All right. Now, just a quick follow-up. And this could be for any of your books. You mentioned the one from five years ago. You said it was a favorite. And oh. you told a lot of stories. And now you come from a rather large school. Was it everybody? Was it 100% of the students? Was it 50% of the students? If it wasn't 100%, how did you go on the choosing of what or who to talk to or what to do? Um, so our three times coverage, which we bought into well before it was started. Um, no, we didn't talk to every single student that uh, because we were probably at about 2,000 that time. Um, so let me finish the first thought. We usually ran at about 80% three times coverage because we used a lot of different techniques. Um, some of them were in-depth interviews, but we also did a lot of like response interviews where we could cover 20 kids in a small copy block. Um, but I would, we pretty much averaged right around 80% of getting kids in the book three or more times. Um, but most of our, there's two kinds. Obviously, we sometimes we cover the, the kids directly involved in the activity. Although one of the techniques we used a lot to cover more kids is instead of interviewing the student actually in the photograph, we interview someone else who is there and they react and explain the photograph. So not, and then there'll be a short description at the end of who's in the photo. So the caption included a quote from someone else plus the people in the photo. Um, so there are the participants, and then you've got to interview them. But we did a lot of mini features, mini profiles, and by a lot I mean 200 that were done. At, those kids were selected at random. Um, we literally, the way we did it, we did a Google alphabetizer, and it would give you two letters, and CN came up, and you had to find the first person who was closest to those two initials. Um, and we just trusted. And I would say that 80% of the time, they would find a good story from that person. Sometimes it didn't work because you're, you're dealing with high school kids and uh, freshman boys in particular can be a little tough to interview. Uh, sometimes until you build trust, some kids trust right away, boom, they'll just tell you their story. But sometimes it doesn't work, and, that, and not because they don't have a story, because you, you're in a hurry and you don't quite 
connect in a way to get that story. And you have to be okay with that. I think in life, you have to be okay with failure because then you just restart and uh, try it again from a different perspective. So I think I answered your question. Like some of it was planned, but some of uh, our, and that's been in the book in some way every year for 10 years, that, that randomness where we, because we didn't want to just cover the quarterback. Uh, we wanted to cover every kid. And if they're not the kids, someone like them that they could relate to. Well, I'll tell you what, I, my opinion, 80% 3X coverage for a school your size is outstanding. That's fabulous. Wow. Uh, <laughs> my schools in my neighborhood aren't as large as yours, not even close. And mm. sometimes I have to kind of push people like, come on, yes, you can do this. Now, let's keep going there because... I guess we talked about this earlier. One way things have changed is, you know, we have things like social media now and so on. Do how, Besides just the book, how does your group do storytelling in other venues? I assume they do, not just the book. What else do they do? Well, for one, um, like I said, all 200 kids, which went from beginners you know, freshmen taking the journalism one class, class or yearbook one class, to the advanced kids, to the photographers, they all contributed to all the media. So um, we had a magazine, we had online, we had social media, we had a yearbook. But the number one way that, that the yearbook kids contributed was they ran an Instagram. Uh, it's called, I think they just changed the name. I believe it's called um, Rockland Media or Rockland Student Media, one of the two. Someone at Rockland Media or at Rockland Student Media, someone would follow it. Has about 3,000 followers, roughly. I haven't checked lately. I still follow them. Um, and it was the yearbook kids and the yearbook photographers that did that. It used to be called at Rockland Yearbook because um, you hit the nail on the head. I, I think one of the mistakes we make as yearbook people is we sit in our room and we make a yearbook. Um, and sure, we go out and shoot photos and things. But we're not part of the school every day. So Instagram, in our case, it's potential. Some schools have pulled it off with Snapchat. I don't see that because uh, it's a little goofy to me. But I know some schools have made it work. Um, some schools have made it work with Twitter, if, if that's where your kids are at your school. But ours, Instagram, was the, the thing that worked. Um, so we published, uh, we tried to, to post on Instagram between anywhere from 5 to 15 times a week. Uh, no more than three times a day was kind of the rule. And what that did is tell our student body, um, and by post on Instagram, I mean we had a regular assignment. Uh, we had a way to, we structured a way to, to do it, but uh, they would, if they were doing a cool lab in their chemistry class, they would ask the teacher, like, can I use my smartphone to get a photo of this? And they would post it on Instagram. Um, but sometimes it was from sporting events. Sometimes it was a group of kids who went on a hike. You know, we wanted to show our student body that we were part of their life every day. Um, and, and we wanted to keep that going. Because I think it's important that the yearbook staff, it doesn't matter how big it is, uh, becomes part of the school and, and that people are aware. So that's why we wear t-shirts and 
do other promos and things, but Instagram by far was the most successful way that we did it. Um, we, what I, the way I would describe it to my own students is we want to be part of the conversation every day. So, um, and we want them to know we're there. And sometimes they would take multiple photos and frankly, with today's smartphones, um, you can use those photos. They're not, they don't always make a great dominant, but if you train your staff on smartphone photography, um, and you can't use smartphone photos. In fact, my yearbook kids had to turn in what we called a yearbook worthy smartphone photo every two weeks as a graded assignment. So, and, and we got story ideas out of that. Um, and kids saw them taking photos. So, which that's part of it too. If they, if they see you taking photos all the time, they're more comfortable with you taking photos. They don't get all goofy. Uh, so I, I found that a priceless tool. That was by far. So the medium doesn't really matter, but like I said, for us, Instagram was the way to do it. And then we could do other promos with it and stuff too. So, uh, And the kids had fun doing it. It was fun for them to post it. So it's cool. I love that line earlier. We want to be part of the conversation every day. And I think the huge majority of yearbook folks, if it's advisors or kids, don't don't get that and it's something with all the great tools that we have now it's something to do and i'm constantly trying to tell folks come on something's happening in the building today something go find it tell a story put it out there somewhere so for those yearbook advisors and staffs they they still resist social media nah come on stop resisting uh yeah, it's, good. you know stop resisting you gotta meet kids where they live yeah. <laughs> We'll get back to our last segment with Casey Nichols, recently retired advisor from Rockland, California, coming up in just a moment. Now, if you check the calendar, you'll notice we've got some holidays coming up, depending on when you're listening to this. Could be Halloween, could be Thanksgiving, could be Christmas, could be New Year's, could be, you know, uh, holidays in the new year after January, February, and so on. And so one of the challenges here is how can you tie in your yearbooking effort to those holidays. All right. It's not a bad idea. Everybody marks those holidays. Certainly Halloween, there are a lot of schools out there. People are allowed to dress up in costume one day, come to school as a witch or a superhero or something. All right. Thanksgiving, obvious. Christmas, very obvious. New Year's, obvious. All the ones next year, obvious. How can you tie in yearbook to those holidays? Certainly there are stories involved, since that's sort of our theme for this episode. But along with that, of course, tying in things like, hey, don't forget to get your yearbook. Don't wait so long. Maybe if you wait till later in the year, you pay more money. Tie that into the holidays somehow since they're rather regular. And you can have a lot of fun with this, a lot of fun with the storytelling, a lot of fun with the story gathering, and see what you can do with it. Don't be a secret, I guess is the basic thought here. Don't let your yearbook be a secret. You're just a bunch of people kind of holed up in a room somewhere at school, quietly doing work. No, no, no. People want their stories told, well, to everybody. And it's hard to do that if you're a secret. There's the yearbook and, of course, social media and other ways. But the first thing you got to do is just get out there and tell the stories and, in this case, maybe connect them with some holidays and have some fun. 
So hopefully you're doing that already. If not, get your group together. Do some brainstorming. All right, Halloween. How can we tie in our yearbook to Halloween? All right, Thanksgiving. How can we tie in our yearbook in various ways to Thanksgiving with publicity and stories we tell and some of that material? Okay? Let's see what you can do with that, and I'll bet you'll have a terrific year this year. Now let's get back to more on storytelling, more great tips and wisdom, including some uh, stories that uh, Casey uh, shared with us about two particular very special people. You find out it's actually a lot of fun to tell stories, isn't it? Let's get back to more with Casey. Now as we start to wrap up here, since we're both kind of storytellers here, let's, let's do one or two. Now I'll mention that uh, for folks listening on the podcast, we have our accompanying video the Yearbooking Report, which is on YouTube. You can just search for Yearbooking. Only one thing comes up. And we'll have some pictures that Casey shared with us um, you know, during that particular piece there, our, our October update. But uh, Casey, you've shared a couple ideas in advance with me. Like, uh, you have some kind of story about a fellow named Mick. <laughs> yes. Let's hear about so Mick, he, to me, he's a, so, to me, being a storyteller at heart um, has just made my life more interesting, honestly. I tell kids I'm never bored except at teacher meetings. Um, for you, it's probably Jocelyn's meetings. No offense to management, uh, but let's face it, meetings not exciting. But I meet people all the time. So um, I just chat them up. So Mick, who I sent you a photo of, uh, I have taught a, a, a workshop at San Diego University for 25 years now. Uh, John started it, John Kutzinger started it years ago. And probably four or five years ago, I noticed Mick, who'd been there for as long as I could remember, in what was a cafeteria, now it's a food court. And so I just started talking to him. And... Um, Turns out, Mick started at the University of San Diego the year before I did. And the funny thing is, he already would remember me every year when I came back. He's one of those guys that just throws himself into his work. Uh, so now he runs the pasta station. And uh, when I come back every year, he goes, Hey, how you doing, Casey? Mick, how are you? And we, we're like old friends. And... Uh, while I haven't had the opportunity to sit down and really have the conversation with him I'd like, which is to really get his story, because I'm so curious, like, how does a guy love his job so much? Um, what, for me, would appear to be somewhat repetitious, um, he just does with a passion. And like I said, he rem I guarantee you during the school year, he has those same interactions with students that he remembers. So Mick and I are like old friends, and all these high school kids are looking at us like, you guys are crazy. So we take that picture every year uh, and, and just have a big old laugh about it. And so he's just like, there are so many people that I meet like that. There was a guy in New York this year, Alfredo, at the, at the Roosevelt Hotel, that uh, within five minutes I had his whole life story about how he moved from Armenia because I just paid attention to him, and I just listened to him. And I was curious, and curiosity is what it's all about. So uh, it makes my life immensely more enjoyable that that I find people interesting, because they, they all are. Uh, and, and that's actually one of my post-retirement plans, is, is to do some storytelling like that, 
uh, I haven't, it'll take me a while to get to it now that I'm doing this gig, but that's one of the things I want to do more of. All right. Now, let's be fair. We, we talked about a guy. Now, you also shared a picture of a young lady named Mary. Yeah. What's the story? So, um, there's actually, I like to follow storytellers. And this, this one, Mary, Mary Latham, uh, I was watching TV one morning on February 8th, two and a half years ago, and saw Mary Latham being interviewed. She has a long story, but the short version is this. She's from New York, and her mother, uh, she went through the dying process with her mother who, who had cancer, and she noticed that uh, there was nothing positive to read in the waiting room in the hospital. So she's telling this story, and she decided that uh, after some time, her mother always told her, Mary, there's more good in the world. And so she decided to take on this storytelling adventure. She's a wedding photographer by trade. Although if you look at her wedding photography, you can look up Mary Lathan wedding photography, I think, on Google. Uh, she's a storyteller with a camera. Like She tells amazing stories with her camera. So she decides to pack up her mother's car, this old Subaru, old blue Subaru, and she is going to visit all 50 states and gather more good stories. Stories of people just doing sometimes very small acts of kindness, sometimes large ones. So I see her do this, and or see her tell this story, and she's, she was in Southern California at the time. She'd been to about 25 states. And I decided, I'm going to write that woman, because I love this project. So uh, we start a conversation on email. Long story short, she ends up visiting my school. Well, I didn't know. That it was the first school she visited. She came in and talked to my kids all day, one of my favorite days of teaching ever, and just told her experiences because not only was she traveling the country, um, it was all crowdsourced, and um, she was staying with hosts that she didn't know. She, she would just put it out like, I'm coming to Northern California and I need places to stay, and she put it out on Facebook and all these other sources, and uh, she, right now, she's finishing up. She's been in about 150 different homes. Uh, she's, not, she's in Alaska right now, and then she has to go to Hawaii. She clearly didn't drive to those two. And then she goes back to New York and finishes with the goal of she's going to publish a book of all these stories she collected. She collected one at my school while I was there. And I have to laugh because uh, there's a picture of me with these kids that I've seen on, it was on the Today Show. When she was on the Today Show. But the point is, Mary is, again, a force for empathy and understanding by collecting these stories. So you can, if you look up More Good Today as one word on Google, uh, her Facebook will show up, her webpage will show up, she has an Instagram, and I can't even begin to tell you the amazing stories that she's collected during this trip. Um, and some, again, very small, heartwarming kinds of things. But she's become a dear, dear friend. Jostens had her at Jostens Advisors University last year, and she shared her story and her mission. Um, I got to introduce her, which was way cool. And even though I've only seen her twice, once for a couple of days at JU and once there, she's really one of my best friends in some ways. Um, so she's an example of following a storyteller. And then I shared one of, from the baseball with Brian Wilson, uh, who's a cancer survivor friend of mine who's got this project called 10 Stadiums in 10 Days. 
Again, you can call it, follow him on Twitter. But for two years now, he's gone to 10 baseball stadiums in 10 days, and just, he just meets people and tells their stories. And so somehow it's, it's about connecting people, right? So uh, I guess the more I love it, the more I find people that of a similar mind like you. Uh, so it's kind of cool. That is awesome. Uh, folks, Mary Latham, L-A-T-H-A-M. Uh, if you get a chance to do a web search or follow her, that sounds like an amazing project that she's doing. So, it Kate's is. Not to go for another hour, but I only have one more question. And <laughs> it's sort of a favorite question that I ask here at the end, uh, since you have so much terrific experience. If you had a chance to sit down with some either rookie advisors or maybe second year and so on, and you could just give them some advice very first year right now and they feel like they're drowning or something or someone's been at this for a year what is some advice you would give to a newer advisor well when I teach workshops one of the things I really try to do is make it seem doable I I guess I would start by saying this be kind to yourself uh, you're more important than the yearbook um, we have to get the yearbook done. We're going to do the best we can. And I always say yearbook is a, is a self-improvement project till we meet a deadline and then it's done and then we let it go. So people can get so concerned about being perfect uh, that, that they'll drive themselves out of it. You know a lot of yearbook advisors only last a year or two because it's not a very positive experience um, either for all kinds of reasons. So I would say be good to yourself. Um, focus on your relationships with your students. But in the very because that's the most important thing. And if you're a first year advisor, real honestly, focus on the younger students over the seniors, because it will take three years to make that program your own. Uh, you, you need to have the students who came there to be with you. Uh, that's what that's when things will start to mesh and and you'll feel more successful and you'll find more enjoyment in it when, when that happens. Uh, those, are, those are the three things I would focus on, actually. And then, obviously, in that first year, like, make sure no bad things happen. Like, improve things around the edges. But in that first year, don't try to change the world. Like, you're inheriting someone else's program, and the kids are going to have a way that they think it should be done. So let them have as much of that as you can stand and then tweak it around the edges. So make small improvements and then make more improvements the second year. And then the third year, it'll be yours. But even once it's yours, take care of yourself, your family. Um, carve that time out because it, we at Chostens, but me as someone who's been in student media for 38 years, um, I want you to keep advising. I want you to walk out like I walked out, still loving it. Like this is a cool job. And I have, like I said, I have no regrets of leaving it because it was time. But wow, I had just a remarkable ride, and I feel so blessed to have had this career. I would, I would wish that for everyone. So when I'm looking at a beginner, I, I would think, well, I hope you get there. I really do. And those are three simple ways to get there. That's some great advice. Thank you so much. 
Now, I'm just curious to wrap up. Um, we're recording this in October, and uh, even though I've been a JEA member for years, I've never gone to one of the spring or fall conventions. And but I'm but this time in November, it's in Washington D.C., which is within easy driving distance for me. So I'm going to go to this one finally. I'm assuming you would be there. I will be there. Then I want to meet you. And That'd be awesome. And remind the missus, all right, when I talked to her in the spring, we had a great conversation. I said, hey, I'm coming to D.C. In fact, I'm even doing a breakout, Casey, on storytelling, maybe at least from my perspective. So, frankly, I may use some stuff here from our interview maybe somehow as part of that. So I'm really glad we talked today. But please remind the missus she owes me a cup of coffee. Uh, <laughs> Although I told her, I said, actually, I don't drink coffee. I prefer tea. She was horrified. But anyway, uh, <laughs> remind her she owes me a cup of tea. Okay. Somewhere I want to meet her and she owes me a cup of tea. All right. Yeah. Well, good luck meeting her there because as president of JEA, she's a blur. I we, we share a hotel room and I barely see her. So, but you'll see her. <laughs> so it'll be good. Well, Casey, I'll look forward to meeting you at least. And I really, this was a great interview. I could go for another hour. Uh, great advice and some inspiration, and I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Scott. I love that you're doing this. It's an awesome service. One more time, a big thank you to our friend Casey Nichols from Rockland, California. We are so thrilled to have him as one of our Jostens ambassadors, we call it. His job now, he's a retired teacher, his job is to go around the country, do all kinds of workshops and teachings and trainings and inspirations to yearbook advisors and staffers, high school, middle school, any school. The idea is this yearbook we're creating is so incredibly important years from now it'll be worth its weight in gold so let's not shortchange our audience let's get out there do a great job but especially tell as many stories as we can not only in the yearbook but really when you think about it all year long everybody in your building has a story to tell very quietly at least they all want their story told and that makes for a much more inviting inclusive school that's a good thing i agree with casey that's nothing but a good thing so let's see what we can do with it. Folks, we appreciate you listening in. And thanks for listening to the Your Booking Report podcast.